0: The narrator pauses to emphasize something. David is now king over Judah, and he's showing himself to be powerful. The narrator wants you to know, now sons were born to David in Hebron. Because the next story is going to basically launching into David becoming the king and moving north. So the narrator wants you to know, oh, by the way, why they're in Hebron. David has collected wives on the run, but now he's giving birth to sons in Hebron. Now, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, born to Ahinom, the Jezreelite. So remember, Ahinom is his legitimacy to the north. That's his treaty with the north. And Ahinom has a son by the name of Ammon. Ammon is going to become very important in chapter 13 of this book, Second Samuel. The next was Caleb, born to Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Now, Caleb is never going to be mentioned ever again in the book, which most scholars suggest that he probably died young somehow, either in these battles and skirmishes or some kind of disease. We don't know, but he never shows up. His third son was Absalom, the son of Ma'akah, the daughter of King Tamil. And Absalom is going to become very important in chapters 13 through basically 20. He's going to become a major thorn in David's side. Now, the other thing that's important for you to understand is that Absalom is born to Ma'akah, the daughter of King of Geshur. That's important because what Absalom is going to do later in this book that has to do with Geshur, you need to remember his mother is from Geshur when we come to the Absalom story and what he's doing. His fourth son was Adonijah, the son of Haggith who's going to become very important in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, as Solomon is becoming king. And his fifth son was Shephathite, the son of Abital. His sixth son was Ithream, born to David's wife, Eglah, and the sons were all born to David and Hebron. All of a sudden now you realize, wait a minute, the last wife we left off on was Abigail. Now there's two more. Oh, he really is collecting wives and that's important the point is the narrator wants to let you know David's violating the, uh, the Deuteronomic regulations for the king now he's already made that point before but he's really making that point now because now it becomes very clear that wives are being multiplied sons are being multiplied the other thing he's doing is setting you up for what's going to come because all these sons are going to play a role someday Verse 6. As war continued between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was becoming more influential, or he was strengthening his position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. says said to Abner, why did you have sexual relations with my father's concubine? Now Abner is strengthening his position of power in the house of Saul. Ishbosheth is beginning to figure this out, and he doesn't like it. So he falsely accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his concubines. Now, how do I know he falsely accuses him? Because of what's coming next. He falsely accuses him. Now, one thing that you're going to realize is that Abner is basically going to shake his metaphorical sword at him. He's not going to really pull his sword, but he's going to use some harsh terms, basically saying, I don't like you anymore. And it says that Ishbosheth is basically going to like... Hang his head in shame and tuck his tail between his legs. Which means Ishbosheth knows that he's no match for Abner. Abner commands the army, and whoever has the army has power. And a king or a president without a military is not a king or a president. Ishbosheth has not won the loyalty or the respect of anybody in the army because he's the 40 year old guy who did not fight in the army when they needed him the most. So he does not have the strength, the resolve, the confidence to face off with Abner and just depose him. Instead, he concocts some sleeping with my concubine, kind of my dad's concubine story. Now, what's the significance of Abner sleeping with the concubine, which he didn't do, but if he had had? Yeah, it's a bid for kingship. We first saw this when Reuben did this with his father. And basically the idea is taking your father's wives is you taking kingship. Or taking anybody's wives who used to be a king as a bid for kingship. And you're trying to take it by force. So he's trying to use something that everybody would hate. And I don't have the power to oppose him because I don't control the military. I don't have the strength or the confidence to stand up to him. I have no idea what he'll do to me. But maybe if I can convince the army that he's done this, even the army would hate that. And they might turn on him. But it didn't work out so well for him. (laughs) This is the only weapon that he has. Verse 8. The words of Ishbosheth really angered Abner. And he said, Am I the head of a dog that belongs to Judah? This very day I am demonstrating loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, and to his relatives, meaning you, and his friends. I have not betrayed you in the land of David, yet you have accused me of sinning with this woman today. God will severely judge Abner if I do not do for David exactly what I what Yahweh has promised him, namely transferring the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah all the way from Dan to Beersheba. ish was unable to answer Abner with even a single word because he was afraid of him. Now, Abner's response basically is, I have been extremely loyal to your house, even in your father's death. I put you in power. I even oppose the will of Yahweh to put you in power. And now this is how you treat my loyalty? Because of that, I'm giving the kingdom and the army completely over to David. I'm done with the house of Saul. Now, if you're trying to strengthen your position and become king, and you're literally sleeping with Saul's wives to take power, do you respond to that accusation by giving up your army and retiring in a cabin in the woods? No. He probably really was strengthening his power, mostly because Ishbosheth probably can't really do anything. It is probably partly selfish and wanting power because he's a general used to it, and it probably is partly you're not really capable of keeping the house of Saul going, so I'll do it for you. And this is how his loyalty is repaid. So he literally says, I'm done. I quit. I'm an old man. I've been fighting too long. And this is how my loyalty has been replayed all these years. It's basically when you like work for a company your entire life and you're expecting the big bonus for your swimming pool and they give you like the jelly of the month club thing. Okay? And you're like, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. This is how my company loyalty is replayed. Replay, repaid. Just don't have a cousin Eddie around you. <laughs> he decides to quit. This shifts the power incredibly. And it almost makes you think Yahweh is behind this. Verse 12, Then Abner sent messengers to David, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make an agreement with me, and I will do whatever I can to cause all of Israel to turn to you. The army is loyal to me. If I persuade them, they'll follow. So David said, good, I will make an agreement with you. I ask only one thing from you. You will not see my face unless you bring Saul's daughter, Michael, when you come to visit me. All of a sudden, David wants that wife back now after all these years. Why does he want Michael back so badly now? Because it's his claim to the throne. And the world's eyes that what gives you legitimacy to the house of Saul is being married to one of his daughters. And this shows you at that moment, is David really trusting God to secure his throne? He's trusting in the politics and the traditions of the culture. That doesn't mean he's not trusting God at all. We are notorious as humans as trusting God and kind not and other things. But it means that there's not full trust in God. And so he's like, yeah, I'll trust God, but just in case, I'll also play the political game. And now I want my wife back, because she ties me to the Benjamites. And I need that right now, especially when I'm going to get the army. If the, what, if, what if Abner's not able to really 100% convince them? Michael will kind of tip the scales on that one for me. So he's playing politics. The problem is is callousness. Seriously, how's your wife going to take that? Now, remember, Michael had been given to another man, which means David has not only abandoned her, but now he's forcing her into a divorce. David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, with this demand Give me my wife, Michael, whom I acquired for a hundred Philistine foreskins. And you go to Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth is going to be like, What? No way I'm going to give that to you. I know what that is. But David's now playing that I bought her. She belongs to me. This is a deal between your father and me. I have to do it. You have to honor it. So ish took her from her fa- husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband went along behind her, weeping the way to Barum. Finally, Abner said to him, go back, so he return home. This shows you how devastating this is. The husband's just following behind her, crying and weeping, but he can't do anything. This doesn't make him a weakling or a coward. This is a man facing an entire army. It doesn't matter how strong and powerful you think you are, how much of right you have. If you're one man against an entire army, you're going to lose. And so all he can do is cry and weep the loss of his wife, who he knows he will never see again. And she's going to be forced into a political marriage. That's one thing if you know that's your light, because most of our marriages are arranged. It's another thing if you've already been married to somebody else for years and have a family and a life with them. But David doesn't care. Politics trumps that. Abner advised the elders of Israel, Previously you were wanting David to be your king. Act now, for Yahweh has said to David, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the Philistines and from all the enemies. So David now speaks to the people of Israel in the north and starts playing the... Remember who God promised to deliver the Philistines through? Whose hand? Remember all those times that I actually did it? Then Abner spoke privately with the Benjamites, and Abner also went to Hebron to inform David privately of all that Israel and the entire house of Benjamin agreed to. When Abner, accomplished, accompanied by twenty men, came to David in Hebron, David prepared a banquet for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, let me leave so that I may go and gather all of Israel to my lord, the king, so that they may make an agreement with you. Then you will rule over all that you desire. So David sent Abner away, and he left him peace. So they had this huge banquet meal. And David makes a covenant with him. Now David's soldiers and Joab were coming back from a raid, bringing a great deal of plunder with them. Abner was no longer with David in Hebron. For David had sent him away, and he had left in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, Joab was told Abner son of Ner came to the king. He sent him away, and he left in peace. Now David has just made a treaty covenant with Abner. And the treaty basically says, I will let you live under the protection of the crown. Who is committed to protecting and obeying the crown? David and Joab. So Job comes back and he's got news. Oh, this just all happened while you were gone. When Job and all the army was with them arrived, Job was told Abner's son of Ner came to the king and he sent him away and he's left in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Abner has come to you. Why would you send him away? Now he's gone on his way. You know Abner the son of Ner. Surely he came here to spy on you and determine when you leave and when you return and discover everything that you're doing. Job immediately sees conspiracy. Now, on the surface, you could think that's a legitimate argument. That's very trusting of David. But as the reader, the narrator's really kind of made it clear that Abner can be trusted because we know the backstory. We know the anger that has been caused. We know that Abner has sworn to Ishbosheth. The narrator didn't tell you that Ishbosheth and Abner concocted this plan. This is that Abner wants nothing to do with Ishbosheth anymore. So it seems that just we can believe Abner. Then Job left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David was not aware of this. When Abner returned to Hebron, Job took him aside at the gate as if to speak to him privately with him. Job then stabbed him in the abdomen and killed him, avenging the shed blood of his brother Asiel. What has Job just done? That's Murder. One could argue that Abner killing his brother was war. But this is blatant, cold-blooded murder. It's an unarmed man who came in peace. Not only that, he's violated the treaty that David's sworn. He's completely disobeyed David. Is David afraid of executing judgments on those who murder? No. The narrator's made that very clear. Job is now guilty of murder. Blatant, cold and murder. And he's used the peace of this treaty to keep Abner off his guard. And he got his blood vengeance. When David later heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before Yahweh of the shed blood of Abner, son of Ner, May his blood whirl over his head of Joab, the entire house of his father. May the males of Joab's house never cease to have someone with running sore or skin disease or one who works at the spindle or one who falls by the sword when one likes food. That's an interesting curse. May your family never be without sores. So Job and his brother Abishai killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asiel and Gibeon during the battle. David instructed Joab, and all the people were with him, Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, lament before Abner. Now King David followed behind the funeral bier, so they buried Abner in Hebron. The king cried loudly over Abner's grave, and all the people wept too. The king chanted the following lament for Abner. Should Abner have died like a fool? Your hands were not bound, and your feet were not put into irons. You fell the way one falls before criminals." All the people wept over him again, and then all the people came and encouraged people came and encouraged David to eat food while he was still still day. David took an oath, saying, God will punish me severely if I taste bread or anything whatsoever before sun sets. All the people noticed this and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased all the people, and all the people and all of Israel realized on that day that the killing of Abner, son of Ner, was not done at the king's instigation. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not realize this great leader has fallen this day of Israel? Today I am weak, even though I am anointed as king. These men, the sons of Uriah, are too much for me to bear. May Yahweh punish appropriately the one who has done this evil thing. The narrator makes it very clear David did not know about this. David publicly denounces Joab. David weeps and mourns and fasts. All of Israel is convinced that David did not violate the treaty they just made with Abner. This is important because it suggests that everything that could have been lost because of Joab's actions has not been lost. And David is now going to have the entire kingdom. The problem is... David does nothing to Joab. He curses him publicly, but that's not a punishment. No American would be satisfied with that. (laughs) If somebody really famous was killed that you loved and respected and stuff, and the president just comes up and says, let them be cursed, and that's all they do. (laughs) Nobody would be happy. They'd be riding the streets. We know that because that's what happened. David does nothing to punish Joab. But what he does say is that these sons of Zariah are, too much for me to handle at this moment david pro- confesses he's scared of them but he's not just scared of them they're also his nephews and so david doesn't know what to do with them their family their nephews they're violent uncontrollable and they disobey david how do you explain job's actions as a extremely loyal man to david I mean, you would say, this is betraying David. How can you say he's loyal to David when he does stuff like this? He's not loyal to David as in, I will obey everything you say, David. He's loyal in, I will do what I think is best for you, David, even if it means disobeying you. Joab does not obey David's commands all the time. Joab does what he thinks is right for David all the time. And sometimes it happens to be what David thinks is right for himself and they're in agreement. Sometimes they disagree and he says, I'm going to disobey you. But not because I'm disobeying you to rebel against you, but I think it's, I'm right and this will benefit you. And you'll thank me in the end, David, because I'm extremely loyal. This is a violent little nephew who really looks up to David as a great warrior. But David is willing to play politics. David is willing to use treaties. And David is willing to seek out God. Joab only knows a sword. That's how you fix every situation. If it's broken, shove a sword in it. (laughs) If it's not working right, shove a sword in it. That's how you fix it. And you're going to see that as we keep going. And so he's disobeying David, but what he doesn't realize is he almost cost David the unification of Israel. Joab's real heart motivation is, I want vengeance. But notice he's also going to David and saying, you can't trust him. He's going to betray you. So he's using that, which is probably a real, real thing, to also get what he wants. But the other thing you have to understand is that I'm also saying all this in the context of the entire book, too, because there's a lot more coming. Yes, his deep, 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 deep desire is a blood vengeance. But he also is protecting David in his own mind. He's using the justification to say that two birds can be killed with one stone. And that's what's going on. Is Job wants what he wants. And that's really the main point. And he will find a way to spin it as supporting David. But other times he also is supporting David. But in Job's mind, he does not see himself as disobedient or rebellious against David. In Job's mind, he's protecting the throne, even the throne from itself. Even if it just happens to coincide with my blood vengeance. That's just an added bonus. In some sense, David has a hard time of dealing with Joab and the people that are close to him. really going to see that with his sons. That he's incredibly just when it comes to the people in the kingdom, but he's not very just when it comes to the people in his family who he desperately wants their love and acceptance and then to like him. There's another sense that he's kind of scared of Joab too. He doesn't really know how to control Joab. Joab is a violent man with a lot of violent tendencies, and he kind of does whatever he wants, all in the name of helping out David. But there's another sense, too, though, when we get to the end of the book and you get to Chronicles, it's going to list all of the mighty men of David that are incredibly loyal to David. And David himself is somewhat of a hardened warrior himself. And there's a sense where you're like, seriously, David, you're scared of these two brothers? You're the king of an entire empire? And you have all these other mighty men, warriors along your side, and you're afraid to deal with them? And and right now, it's hard to know. Right now, it feels a lot more like fear. It feels a lot more like, um, I can't deal with the people that are close to me. But when we get to kings, and David's giving his final advice to Solomon, it really starts sounding a lot like yeah, but Job was kind of convenient to have around, too. It was kind of nice, like, yeah, I mean, Avner was an innocent man, but he could have been trying to betray me. He was still technically the enemy, and it's kind of nice to have him out of the way and not thinking about him anymore. And I don't have blood on my hands because Job took care of it. You begin to realize, like, how much is it of one of these things, or is it a mixture of a whole bunch of them? and And you're beginning to realize that, David's going to tolerate Abner or, or David's going to tolerate Joab in a lot of ways. Maybe a little bit of the family member thing, a little bit of the I'm afraid of him, but a lot of probably it's just politically convenient to have him around. And then when David's on the deathbed and he no longer needs that political convenience, he commands his son, kill him. And if he was really scared of Joab, wouldn't he be scared for his son's life? And if he was really had a hard time dealing with Joab because he's close to him, would he really command his son to do it? because you still wouldn't want him dead if you had a hard time dealing justly with him. And so you get this sense as we go on, it's just kind of convenient to have Job around. Job is David's bloody hand, so to speak, and that's pretty convenient.